0: This morning we're going to begin with a verse that we used a couple weeks ago, the last time we were together. That would be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. No, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we are burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we would trust that he will still deliver us. In this short passage, we read that even the apostles themselves and the disciples of the early church, who we hold up in such high esteem, had to go through a process. <clears throat> oh, why am I? we squeaking this morning. <laughs> a little late in life, that we to be happening, isn't it? <laughs> Uh that God was putting that even them through a process of taking them from trusting in themselves to trusting God. And he said the process came to the point where they were pressed beyond measure. That they the spirit of life. When the apostles when an apostle is saying that we, the spirit of life, you know it must have been pretty bad. And if you read about all the things that Paul talked about he went through, you can understand that. But he said that it happened to them to break them from the whole scope of self-sufficiency, of logic, of natural carnal reasoning, And get us to the place of faith in God. Even in the worst of situations. Now God deemed that worthy of the apostles. And we also find that that God puts us all through that process. Of taking us from our survival instincts, our natural reasoning, our logic, by working it out on our own. And not trusting in any of that. And trusting in God instead. That doesn't mean there's not a time for natural reasoning. We dare not trust in it. We dare not trust in logic. We are not in those things. But the trust in God who raises the dead. So can we see anybody taking God seeing the Lord taking anybody through that process besides Paul. So, <clears throat> the first place I'm going to go is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. In verse seventeen, Mark ten seventeen. <clears throat> now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Verse 19. He says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not uh, defray, do not honor your father and your mother. So he's taken him through the Ten Commandments. In verse 20, he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way Sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words, But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. He uses the word trust the second time He says it. And so Jesus was confronted by this rich man. He goes, what do I got to do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus put His finger right on the thing that he was trusting instead of God. And the thing that he had his heart set on. And the thing that he was putting his trust in. His resources. When he had his resources, he had security. When Jesus said, get rid of those resources, uh-oh, that's getting rid of my security. That's getting rid of this, you know, the stuff that's dear to my heart. You see... That in order for Jesus to have this man follow him, he had to get rid of the natural things that he trusted in. He was trusting, and his heart was set on his resources. And so God said, Okay, you know what? You want to follow me? You got to take that all away. You got to get rid of all that. All that baggage that's holding you back. The Lord's saying, Okay, you can follow me, but you got to go through a process. And the man rejected the process out out of turn. In verse 28, And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. And so Jesus answered and said, Surely I say to you, there is no one as has left house, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, or lands, for my sake, in the Gospels, who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Yes, there is things to lay down in order to pick up our cross, like he said to the rich man. But you see, there is reward for it not only the life to come, but in this life also. That there be blessings to come. And so he mentions giving up, you know, all these different things. But he says, no one who does this will receive a hundredfold in this time. Not in, eternity, in this time. Blessings in return. A hundredfold times. We have to forsake anything. Here's a It's a process where we lay down our life, we lay down our will... We forsake all to follow Him, but there is a return for that. There is a reward for obeying Christ. A lot of people miss that. It says here that the controversial thing of, of it says here of, of, for, of forsaking or leaving a house it says Brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, or wife even. And so, some people, when they become a Christian, they realize they're in an adulterous situation. We must leave that. But in all those things, there's reward for obeying God. So from here, we go to the Gospel of Luke. In chapter nine, beginning in verse fifty-one. Now it came to pass Mark, I mean Luke uh, 951. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? And he turned and rebuked them and said, You you don't even know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. James and John they looked at the Old Testament and see what Elijah did. Say, "Hey, let's do that." Sounds like Elijah, hey, "Lord, you want us to do that too?" You know, it's like it's a good thing they asked. <coughs> but they had no idea what the will of God was. They were going on logic, human reasoning, their own understanding. And seeing that these people didn't receive Jesus, and they went back to the story of Elijah and said, hey, this sounds like a good idea. Why don't we do this to fix them? Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy people. I came to save their lives, not to destroy them. And you see with the apostles that they were not on, they did not have the mindset of Christ. And you see, that Jesus had to take them through a process. Even his disciples, he had to take them to a process. And you see him often rebuking them. Often correcting them. Because they didn't have the mind of Christ. And so he had to take them to a process to bring them to the mind of Christ. Do we think that we should be any different? And so from there, we go to Mark back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter fourteen. And this is after the the, the Lord's Supper, where they go out to the Mount of Olives in verse twenty-seven, Mark fourteen twenty-seven. We'll pick up there, after they go out to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. That's from the book of Zechariah, the Old Testament. Verse 28. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. Before we go on in this passage, you can see that Peter had confidence to even to to stand up against what Jesus was saying. He was... Saying, this ain't going to happen to me. Even though Jesus was saying it, he couldn't say, why? Because of self-confidence. Of self-assuredness. Of being self-sufficient. And walking in his own strength. And it was necessary, and it's written here for our learning. This is not just recorded to show, show us how how, how how far off Peter and the other apostles were. It's for our learning. This is here for our learning. And we are see ourselves in this. And if we don't, we should. That if we're walking in self-assuredness and self-sufficiency, that God is in the process of changing us. Of taking us from point A and bringing us to point B, like the apostles. Instead of trusting ourselves, he said this happened so we don't trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead." That's point A and point B. From the place of trusting ourselves, trusting our logic, trusting in our self-sufficiency, trusting in our own understanding. And that's point A and to point B, trusting in God. And so he has to bring us through a process. And you see the process that he brought Peter and the other disciples to, it's a process down. Humbling them. And in Peter's case, even humiliation, if necessary, to break us away from self-sufficiency. And putting our faith and our hope and our trust, not in ourselves, but in God. So Jesus took them to the Garden of Gethsemane and three times he told them to watch and pray in verse 38 lest you enter in temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now it was he was speaking probably about his, as well as the disciples, I'm guessing. But finally Jesus gets arrested, after coming back and finding them asleep three times. In verse 46, And they laid their hands on him, on Jesus, and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And of course, it doesn't record it here, but I believe in the other accounts it talks about how that Jesus rebuked him and said, I could call twelve legions of angels, but how could the Scriptures then be fulfilled? Tried. One of them, Peter, we find out from another account, tried to defend Jesus with the sword. And Jesus rebuked him and said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And he healed the ear of the man who's, uh, who Peter cut off his ear. He healed the ear. So that wasn't God's way. And so when that Jesus wasn't accepting of that, that carnal display... It says in verse 50, Then they all forsook Him and fled. So the thing that they said they wouldn't do, they did. They all said likewise. Not just Peter. They all said they would not forsake Him. They would not deny Him. And they all ran. And Jesus got arrested. In verse 54, Peter followed, as they were taking Jesus away, Peter followed at a distance, (coughs) <coughs> and of course Peter did exactly what he said he wouldn't do he denied Jesus three times just like Jesus said and the last time it says and he began to curse and swear verse 71 and I do not know this man of whom you speak and finally the rooster crowed a second time and he remembered everything Jesus said and went out and wept But yet when the women, three days later, four days later, when Jesus was crucified, they were in hiding after His death. When the women came and said, He rose from the dead. They saw an angel. Jesus wasn't there. They still didn't believe everything that Jesus said. So you see, When Jesus appeared to them, it says he rebuked them for their unbelief. He had to take them from a place of unbelief to a place of belief. And so does he do that with us. From the book of Proverbs, we read these words. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all of your ways, and He will direct your path. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Depart from evil. So, in that passage, it tells us not to lean on our own wisdom. That means logic. That means natural wisdom. That means looking at it with our own eyes and with our own understanding, according to the outward appearance. All logic and natural wisdom have to end here, as far as putting our trust in them. If we pray to Him and acknowledge Him in everything in our life, and all of our ways, God will direct our path instead of us. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want God to be the one directing our path instead of using our natural wisdom and our own understanding? That's what we want, isn't it? Then we have to stop trusting in our own way. We have to stop leaning on our own understanding. Because we have a decision to make. Trusting in our own understanding or trusting in God? You can't have both. We try to do that, a little of both. A little of leaning on our own understanding, a little of trusting in God. Half and half. We call that riding the fence. Why do people do that? Why is it why do some Christians go half and half? It's because. Sometimes we haven't come to the point of forsaking all. And that <clears throat> we're, hedging our, we're hedging, so to speak. Like when people in the gambling world hedge their bets. They make a bet on one team and then they make a bet on the other team just in case uh, it doesn't work for this side, they work on that side. So they don't lose too much money. And people are hedging just in case they say, well, they don't say this, but in their subconscious it's like, just in case God doesn't help us, I got this. And they haven't come to the place of realizing the foolishness of that kind of reasoning. Well, with all of your heart means with all of your heart. Trusting Him with all of your heart. And if we're not trusting Him with all of our hearts, God is going to bring us through things until we do. And there are some who go to the end of their life and never trust the Lord with all their hearts. And their whole life is this merry-go-round of the same process over and over and over again. Why? Because they're still leaning on their own understanding. They're looking at things by the outward appearance. They're not acknowledging God in all of their ways. They're not looking for God to direct their path in everything. Some things, yes, but not in everything. This is like some people are submitting to God and obeying Him in some things, but not in all things. You heard that rich man. Lord, I've been doing all these commandments my whole life. Jesus said, well, <clears throat> there's this linchpin. There's this thing you got to do. And if you do that, you're going to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, this is what it is. And when he was told what it is, he said, oh no, not that. I'll just keep all the commandments. Not that. Not letting go of my, you know, stuff. What is God putting his finger on in our life? Where are we still leaning on our own understanding? Where are we not acknowledging him and submitting to his lordship? Because that's what he's putting his finger on. Not the things you're already doing, but things that you're holding back. In this process of forsaking all, this comes into play very deeply. <clears throat> so from there when i go to a couple of references 1 is in 1st Peter chapter 5 1st Peter chapter 5 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. <clears throat> Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, because He cares for you. Isn't that interesting that in this passage, these couple of verses we read, that talks about humbling yourself under God's mighty hand, and casting all your cares upon Him. You see, because if we hold on to our cares... If we lean on our own understanding, you know, we're not humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. When we're not trusting God, we're not humbling ourselves before His mighty hand. God's mighty hand is a hand of power. We're not putting our trust in His power. We have to humble ourselves in order to put our trust in Him and not ourselves. It's a process of humbling that Jesus put his disciples through if you look at it when Jesus said to Peter Simon Simon Satan would like to sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you he said otherwise he would have sifted you like wheat and he says but when you are converted strengthen your brethren and Peter was not comfortable with that and he was resisting what Jesus said and later on he even takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. And then Jesus in turn turns around and rebukes him. You see that God had to put Peter through a humbling process. So in order to trust God, in order to lean not on our understanding, there it takes humbling. There it takes putting aside our pride. Instead of putting our a trust in ourselves and our survival instincts and our resources and all these other things that we put our trust in. We have to humble ourselves put our trust not in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. This process that God puts us through is to get rid of our pride. And if he has to wound our pride, if he has to take us through that process where our ego is shattered, Well, humble ourselves under His mighty hand, and in His time, He will exalt us, instead of us exalting ourselves. And that's what we want, isn't it? We want to be honored by God, not by ourselves. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that the desire of our hearts? To be exalted, to be lifted up by God and not ourselves? We read something similar in James chapter 4 and verse 10. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. There it is again God exalting us, and not us walking in pride. Humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. We're doing this in the sight of God, not in the sight of men. We're not humbling ourselves in the sight of men like the Pharisees. To be seen of men, we're humbling ourselves. In God's sight, with conscience towards God, and that He, in His time, in His program, according to His will, He will lift us up when He's ready. In the meantime, we have to humble ourselves before the Word of God, before the things that God is saying. It also says in James chapter 4 earlier, in James chapter 4 and verse 6, it says God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. When we're walking in pride, God's going to resist us. And that pride comes in a form of self-sufficiency. Leaning on our understanding. Walking in natural reasoning and logic as opposed to what God says, not acknowledging Him in all of our ways, but leaning on our own understanding. God's going to resist that. If you're not going through it already, if you don't recognize it, He's going to keep on resisting you until you do recognize it. That's what the process what God brings us through. To take us away from all that stuff of self-sufficiency and our own wisdom, our own pride, all that stuff, tearing that out of our, our, our tightened hand, unclasp our hand, and take that out of our hand and humble us until we humble ourselves and stop leaning on our own understanding, stop leaning on our own resources, stop leaning on our own wisdom and acknowledging Him. And acknowledge that he's wiser and more powerful than us, and giving it to him. Casting all our cares upon him. That's. Now we got something, and we're casting all our cares upon him. And trusting in him for all our cares and all of our burdens. Instead of carrying that big lead weight in our back, get rid of it. And lean not on our own understanding. And cast all our cares upon him. Because he cares about us. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Philippians chapter 2 First 3 Philippians 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. where conceit can also be translated pride. But with humility of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not on your own interests, but the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him." The humility of Jesus. Jesus said, I always do the things that please my Father. Now how can you do that unless you humble yourself? Because if we don't humble ourselves, we're going to be doing our own will. We're going to be leaning on our own understanding. We're going to do a thing our way, not God's way. We're going to be looking at things according to the outward appearance. and reacting accordingly but you see Jesus didn't do that and because he did not do that it says he humbled himself and became obedient we have to humble ourselves to obey God we have to put away our pride King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel says God is able to humble those who walk in pride and many of us have seen and experienced that in our own lives. That's the process. When we are in the world before we're in Christ, all that's in the world, lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. We come to the Lord, He changes us in the inside, but that outside of us, it wants to still do those things. Still wants to walk in pride and all the the flesh and the lust and everything else of this world. There's power in the blood of Jesus. There's power to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. There is power to do that. To humble ourselves and become obedient to God, even to the point of death, just like Jesus. And that's the process God is bringing us through. To not be looking out just for our own interests. Not selfish ambition. Not about me anymore. It's about others, not about me. Humility of mind. That was Jesus. God is bringing us to the place of humility of mind. And we need to embrace it. Or fight it. Because our natural instinct is to fight that humility of mind. That's our natural reasoning. That's our logic to fight humility of mind. That's not natural. That's spiritual to be, have the humility of, of mind at Christ day. But he gives us, that, us his spirit for that purpose. And when we resist the Holy Spirit and we grieve the Holy Spirit, God has to do what's necessary to break us of that. These things happen to us. Think about it. The words of the Apostle Paul. These things happen to us. Me and Apostle, he said. That I would learn not the trust in myself, not the trust on my own understanding, not the trust on anything, but on God who raises the dead. Not logic, not natural reasoning, not leaning on my own understanding, but God who raises the dead. Embrace that process is real. I'm going to stop here. And Brother Dan, Dave, Ben, any guys want to comment on that? Please do start with you.